Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday afternoon session. Some of you, you might be here different time of day for your time zone. You might be watching this after the fact, but we're live every Saturday these days at 3 p.m. Eastern time. So this morning in our study group, we were reading the Mahagopalaka Sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya, the greater discourse on the cowherd. So in India, in the time of the Buddha, cows were a big thing well before the Buddha came around. People were herding cows. The culture of India has, has inherited from the people who spoke the Vedas. There was a very strong belief in the importance of cattle. A person's wealth was determined by how many cows they had their greatness. Cows eventually became a holy symbol. In the time of the Buddha, cows were, cows were important for rich people. Cows were an important commodity. And so having a experienced and competent cowherd was important, or if you couldn't hire one, you should be one yourself. You should be competent in herding your cows. And so the Buddha used this, the Buddha's ordinary methodology was to use ordinary examples from the world to create analogies with the spiritual life. Usually focused on the monastic life. But what you usually find is that when the Buddha was talking about the monastic life, you couldn't you couldn't relate it exactly to non-monastic life, but you could almost always, can almost always extrapolate it. Monastic life is so simple that the simple concepts and issues related to monasticism are easily expand, extrapolatable to ordinary life. So the Buddha said to the monks, who was dwelling in Savati and Jetavana, Natapindika's park. For those of you who have been there, it's a delightful wooded area even today. Although today I think you have to pay money to go in it. 
that you can still see the ruins of ancient monasteries, ancient buildings, just outside of the old city of Sawati, which is now completely abandoned. It was once a great city. He said to the monks, Bhikkhus, Padante, they replied, Venerable Sir, Reverend Sir. And the Buddha said, Ekadasahi, Bhikkhuve Angehi. With eleven factors, monks. Eleven factors. When a cowherd possess, possesses eleven factors, Ababu Goganang Pariharitung. is incapable of keeping and rearing a herd of cattle. An incompetent cowherd has 11 reasons why. Likewise, a competent cowherd. The sutta is laid out in a parallel structure. So the first half talks about an incompetent coward, and then if a person has the opposite ten factors, ten qualities, then they are competent. So an incompetent coward, not a rupanyohoti, an incompetent coward doesn't know the physical form, doesn't know about physical form. He doesn't know when he looks at a cow, whether the cow is sick or healthy, whether it's a strong cow, a weak cow. Maybe he doesn't know, even know if it's a male cow or a female cow, an adult cow, a baby cow. Not lakanakusalo, number two. He's not skilled in the characteristics of the cows, being able to determine which cows are better than others, being able to distinguish between cows that are mature and cows that are immature. Number three, na'asartikang harita. He doesn't pick out the flies' eggs. So I guess cows get sick, just like humans get sick. And so they, the flies lay their eggs in the cow's ears, maybe. I don't know, in the, in the cow hide. Maybe they, in the cow's sores, if the cow has a sore or a wound, the flies will lay eggs and it can become quite problematic for the cows. Can't really keep a cowherd with that.
Number four, na wanang pati cha data pati. Fails to dress wounds. To cover up the wounds of the cows. Number five, na dumang katahuti. He doesn't smoke out the sheds. Number six, Natitang Janati. He doesn't know the ford. The ford is a place for the cows to cross. So if you take the cows down to the river and you try to drive them across in the wrong place, you just drown them all. That's not across the river. Number seven, Napitang Janati. He doesn't know what it means. He doesn't know what which cows have drunk water when they go down to the river. He doesn't can't tell which ones have drank when they have drank. He doesn't know when they have drank. That's how it is. So maybe goes down to the river and the cows drink the water. Some do, some don't. And he doesn't wait for them all to drink and he brings them back and some of them get sick because they didn't, they get dehydrated because they didn't drink water. The weeting janati, he doesn't know the path, doesn't know which way to go, which way to drive the cows. I got lost in Thailand once, living in the forest. I was wandering out of the monastery and thinking, well, you know, it's just one path, easy to go. But as soon as I turned around, everything looked the same. Turned around to go back and I was lost. Everything looked the same. And there was more than one path. So I started taking the wrong path and doubting myself and not sure. I felt completely lost. Ended up being lost until midnight. And then a, a poacher, a hunter, found me. Or I found him. He was shooting something with his gun. So I started walking towards him and I wasn't sure. Should, should I go? Go closer to this person with the gun. But he was actually quite helpful. Pointed me the way back to the river, back to the village. Yeah, don't be like that if you're going to herd cows. So what I did when I was lost is I saw these cows and I thought, well, you know that saying, till the cows come home. So you think at the end of the night, the cows are going to go home. In the forests of Thailand, the cows don't go home. So I started following them and then they started following me and it just went, we went round in circles. It didn't work. Where are we at? Number nine. No, number ten. Just a second. Rupa Nyuhoti.
yeah, number eight and then number nine. Nagocharakusalohoti. One doesn't know pastures. One doesn't know the gochara. So a gochara, go is a cow. Chara, the place where the cows go. He doesn't know what is a suitable place for the cows. So he drives the cows around and he, they end up going into other people's fields, eating the crops, and he gets in trouble. He or she gets in trouble. Number 10, Anavasesa Dohi Tahuti. He milks them dry. He milks the cows dry, which means he milks them until they can't give more milk. And I guess that's a bad thing. And number 11, he doesn't respect the, he shows no special veneration to the elders of the herd. Now, I don't know about with cows, whether that's important or not. I don't know whether the cows really mind if you don't pay respect to the elder cows, but there may be some hierarchy whereby it's important. It certainly is important with humans. And so the Buddha uses these 11 as a way of describing the qualities important of one who is practicing his teachings. So number one, having no knowledge of form. So with cows, you have to know. You have to be. You have to know the form of a cow. You have to know what a cow is like. But the physical form for a bhikkhu, for a practitioner of Buddhism. has nothing to do with the way a cowherd looks at form. Physical form in Buddhism is to see that all physical form, you look around the room, all of the things that you see, to understand form is to understand that all of this is just experience. It's the physical aspect of experience. When you feel the chair that you're sitting in, you feel the temperature in the room, even the light that you see hitting your eyes. All of that is just the elements of experience. Buddha said the four elements, the earth element, which is the hard and soft feelings. The air element, which is the tension, stiffness. The fire element, which is the heat, the, the temperature, and the water element, which is the cohesion. All of that, that's all it is. Meaning to, to see that reality is our experiences. It's not really a... Um, it's not, a, it's not meant to be a profound philosophical idea. It's meant to be a instructive teaching on how we should approach rea reality. 
our frame of reference when we live, when we experience, is to pay attention to our experiences. Instead of getting caught up in the form of things, this is a cow, this is that, to see the experiential side of them. This is seeing, this is hearing. Everything in our reality boils down to experiences. Lakanakuslo to know, to be able to distinguish between, well, for cows, you have to be able to distinguish between their characteristics, but for people, the Buddha said it's our gamma, our actions that distinguish us. So it's important for a practitioner in Buddhism to be able to distinguish between people Cows, not so much, but people. You need to be able to find people who can support you, who can who can be supportive in your practice. Surround yourself with people who are like-minded, who are intent upon the same things. Try and associate yourself with good people. Be able to d distinguish between people, not because... They're beautiful, like a beautiful cow, like a beautiful person, but because their minds are beautiful. And to think of ourselves not in terms of our status or our health or our good looks or our strength, even our wit or our charm or our intelligence, but in terms of our qualities. Number three, practitioners should be able to pick out the cow, the pick, pick out the flies' eggs. Buddha said, picking out the flies' eggs is relating to sensual desire, ill will, cruelty, unwholesome thoughts. Buddha said, flies' eggs refers to unwholesome thoughts, just like a cow develops these flies' eggs and can get sick because of them. Our mind has flies' eggs planted in it. If we allow the thoughts of craving, ambition, ill will, if we hold grudges against people or cruelty, malevolence, manipulation, arrogance, conceit, if we allow these to fester in us, they will grow into real problems where we cause harm for others and harm for ourselves. Number four. Just as with cows, you have to dress their wounds. You have to tend to their wounds, care for them, cover them up with bandages and poultice or whatever. So too, we have to cover up our senses with mindfulness. 
We have to guard our senses. And here the Buddha talks about this idea of nanimita gahi nanubhyanjana gahi to not get caught up in the particulars. When you see something, normally when we see things, there's a process of interpretation. It's that, that process of interpretation that we try to replace with simple experience. Mindfulness. The idea behind mindfulness is to experience things purely as they are. With clarity and simplicity. And to avoid this process of interpretation. That's like a wound that festers. If we don't guard our senses, meaning we're not mindful of them. This is where all of our problems come from. We see something and there's an interpretation. We hear something, smell, taste, feel, think, nothing, nothing but these six. There are no doors to suffering. There are no doors to defilement, to corruption, to evil, besides these six doors. And so likewise, there are no there are no paths to purity and goodness except through our experience through one of these six doors. Number five. Smoking out the sheds. So I guess the, the cow sheds would have insects in them and bats maybe. There's vampire bats that suck the blood of the cows. You got to smoke them out. I don't know if there's other reasons or not. But for a, for a Buddhist, smoking out the sheds means teaching others. Your shed is your, your, your home. It's your society. It's your social circle. And if you don't support the people in your social circle, the people in your social circle are not cultivating or interested in the same things that you're cultivating. It may be very difficult for you to continue. You get distracted and pulled away by them. And so the Buddha said it behooves us to help others. You know, in a monastery, if a senior monk doesn't teach the junior monks, oh, it can cause great problems. Distractions for the, for the meditators, distractions for the monks. We should teach others. This is as a means of creating a suitable living environment, suitable life, suitable social structure. Sharing the Dhamma, the Buddha said, it's, it's the greatest gift is to give the Dhamma. So sharing it doesn't mean teaching how to meditate only. It can also mean sharing teachings, sharing discourses of the Buddha, 
sharing information about Buddhism. It's a great thing if we give to our friends and our family and share with the world. Supports our own practice. Number six, one should know the ford, the place for crossing the river. So one who doesn't know the way is one who doesn't ever approach people and ask questions. So today we're going to have questions eventually if I ever get through this. And so asking questions is very important. We had a, a question this morning about Apparently, people are afraid to ask questions. And I said, well, you should be. You should be. You should not, not afraid, but reluctant. You should be reluctant to ask questions. Questions are very important, but you should ask questions, good questions. You should be careful about your questions. They're very important. So you shouldn't, you shouldn't be afraid or, or uh, averse to it, but you should take it seriously. It's a very important thing. If you don't do it, you'll never know the way. Just like a cow herder goes to the river and doesn't know where the ford is. How do you cross this river? A person who never talks or asks or gets instruction from people who know will never be able to cross the river of samsara to reach safety on the other side. Number seven. How does one... Number seven, what does it mean to have drunk? So you talk about knowing when cows have drunk. For a meditator, it means to have drunk themselves. Someone who has never tasted, who has never tasted the fruit of the practice. Some people study Buddhism or live as Buddhists for their whole lives and never taste the fruit of the practice. But for a meditator, all it takes is even just a few days of practice and they can start to taste some of the fruits of the practice. If they continue on, they'll realize the higher, the higher fruits of Nibbana, which is beyond compare. Then you can say they have drunk. So when you know that cows have drunk the water, the person who has tasted Nibbana is like a, that cow. Oh, this is what it's like to have drunk. It's different. Different to have not tasted the Dhamma. Now that I have tasted it, I can see all, all it's different. Some people don't know. If you haven't been there, you don't know. Number eight, how does one not know the path? In Buddhism, you have to know the path. And, and, and for, for a cowherd, you have to know the way for the cows to go. In Buddhism, you have to know the way for the meditator to go, the way for the mind to go. And this is the Eightfold Noble Path, of course. Number nine, how do you become skilled in pastures? 
knowing where the cows should go and where the cows shouldn't go. Well, you have to know where your mind should go and mind should not go. The pasture in Buddhism is the four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha says. Because everything we do in our lives, through our day, every day, fits squarely within the four foundations of mindfulness. And mindfulness is the frame of reference within which we should live. Our whole life should be walled in by the four foundations of mindfulness. We should never leave this pasture. It doesn't matter what we do. The Buddha said mindfulness is always useful. So wherever we go, whatever we do, wherever we meet, mindfulness should be our constant companion. This is how we stay in our pasture. Number 10, how do you milk dry? Milking dry is an important danger for a Buddhist monastic because we don't engage in economy. We don't collect money. We don't engage in uh, employment. And so we rely upon charity of others. Now, relying on charity of others is a very delicate thing because of course there's no reason why anyone should give you anything people give if they want to give if they feel inclined to give if they're inspired to give quite often people give to monks because they're inspired and appreciative but they have no obligation to do so And so for a, a monk who is taking advantage of people's desire to give, milking dry means taking more than is absolutely necessary. The only way you can rationalize living off of charity is if you take what is absolutely necessary and, of course, what is freely given. Taking what is freely given is, of course, that's the base. But even in that which is freely given, you cannot justify the life of a monastic if you take more than is absolutely necessary. So for someone who, who receives support, because, of course, practically many monks receive great, great support. People always inviting them. As a teacher, I often get people inviting me to ask if I need anything. and Sometimes they complain that I never ask. But as a monastic, you, you have to understand. And so this is, this is where I said this applies to Buddhist monastics, but the principle is, is applicable anywhere. The principle of not taking advantage of others. Not taking advantage of the kindness of others. To be subharo, to not be a burden on anyone. As a student, you shouldn't be a burden on the teacher, so you should be conscientious. People are often afraid, I think, when we do our reporting, afraid that they might say the wrong thing. And it's not that's not that's not the way it is. But you have to be conscientious because some sometimes you might be you might uh, take for granted or
be overly burdensome to a teacher, for example. So it doesn't go just with the monks being burdensome on the lay people. Lay people can be burdensome on monks. But you can be burdensome on other people, burdensome on your parents, burdensome on your spouse, burdensome on your parents or your children, burdensome on your employees or your employer, burdensome on your friends, burdensome on society. We should strive to be no burden to anyone. It's it's a it's a unwholesome state of mind to be burdensome. And number eleven, one should venerate the elders. And we had a talk about that this we had a quite a talk about that this morning, talking about what it means to venerate elders, because we quite often focus on the wholesome qualities of a person. And of course, those are the most important. It doesn't matter whether one is an elder or a junior. Better is to be someone with wholesome qualities. And obviously a senior monk may be lacking in wholesome qualities. And a junior monk might be very much in possession of great wholesome qualities. We relate this to ordinary life. Old people were taught to venerate our elders, and then there's a complaint, well, our elders aren't very venerable. But it's an important part of social fabric to respect seniority. In a monastic society, it's a very important concept that you see often disregarded to the peril of those who disregard it, because... Of course, anyone can say that they're going to venerate those who are worthy of veneration. But if they themselves are not a perfect judge of character, they're most most likely going to become a part of the problem. They'll become they'll become corrupted themselves when they criticize this or that monk. When we criticize our elders and disregard our elders, we become a part of the problem. It, it, it absolutely is true that being senior or being getting old doesn't make you wise necessarily, doesn't make you a, a wise person, but it contributes to your wisdom, it contributes to your knowledge. Without the veneration or the respect for our elders, we lose access to a great, great store of understanding and, and experience. Meditation, mindfulness, is all about gaining wisdom through experience. So the experience we get in meditation is, is intensive, it's constant. An ordinary person who doesn't practice meditation, whether they be a monk or, an, or a non-monk, they will gain experience more slowly, but there are many kinds of experience that they will gain, experience on how to live as a monastic, experience on how to live in society. No matter what their station, they're gaining experience. And without the respect for that, we lose, we lose so much in our culture. 
with young people thinking they know better than old people, old people being shunned to the side. We lose access to their stories. We lose access to their experiences. It, it relates very much to meditation. Meditation gives you that sort of experience on an, in, on an intensive level. But you get many, many insights in life just by living. That and the fact that it keeps social harmony. Respect for elders means that we always know where we stand. We, res we respect that this person has been alive longer than us, and so we respect their seniority. And then there's no arrogance, there's no holding ourselves up. Going by seniority, especially monasticism, is great because it takes it out of your hands. You never have to wonder where you stand or where anyone else stands. And you never have to be a judge. It cuts out a person's ability to be a judge so that people are not able to judge and say, Phew, I'm only going to respect these monks. This is the monk who everyone should respect. Respect this monk. When you respect your elders, then everyone knows that it's, of course, not because those people are more venerable or more pure or perfect. It's because they're senior. And it creates harmony in society. It's a great and important thing. So these 11 qualities, it's an interesting sutta. I like the simile, especially the, cow, the, the flies' eggs. We allow our thoughts to fester. They become, they grow into flies that bite us. So that's the Mahango Palaka Sutta. We'll move on to questions. If anyone has questions, the rest of this session is to ask your questions. Questions about meditation, questions about your practice. Try and be thoughtful and conscientious in your questions. Make them count. Okay, let's begin. Do you have any advice for noting something for too long? I tend to note things after they're gone, thereby prompting other things to arise, and I have trouble getting back to the stomach. There's lots of things you can say distracted, distracted. And don't, don't worry too much about having rules about what you should and shouldn't do. If you can't get back to the stomach and you realize you're just distracted, say distracted, distracted. And that should help you calm down so you can go back to the stomach. My practice has been difficult because my life is changing in ways I don't like. I try to note judging, but it's tricky. How can I give acceptance to change? Well, it's tricky. Don't that, that's not a not an excuse. I mean, that's not a problem. That's a part of it. Meditation is always going to be tricky. Don't be discouraged by that. If there's dis, if there's things you don't like, say disliking, disliking. It's not difficult because your life is changing. It's more difficult because you don't like those changes, because you're not able to deal with change. You see, remember, impermanence means change. It's that change, being able to understand that 
that reality of change, that things change. That's what impermanence means. Be able to understand that things change because our lack of understanding is what throws us off guard, throws us off balance when things change. We get caught off guard when things change. Caught off guard is a good phrase because we talk about guarding, right? If you're cautious, if you're consci uh, conscience, conscious, conscientious, careful. While practicing, I lose track of noting and start planning for the future. Is all the time that I'm thinking without noting time wasted? Yes, pretty much. But that's that's to be expected. You see, you're 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 not good at at the thing that you start practicing. That's why we call it practice. So you're practicing. You should practice to catch that whenever you can. Don't be discouraged by that. It's called practice. It's not called perfect. When becoming more adept at the meditative practice, is it normal for the mind to run increasingly more rampant outside of meditation? So there is no normal. No, those kind of questions are not really helpful. These people who ask these are, are concerned whether there's a problem because it's running increasingly more rampant outside. We don't look at things as problems. So the only thing I can say about this is that you should be mindful when your mind is running more rampant. You see, a big part of it is to see that it, you don't know what's going to happen. Life is uncertain. And you should be vigilant and ready for whatever happens. My mind is really quiet during meditation since I've improved my practice, even feeling a calm joy with my breathing without attachment. I would like to step further than just this calm. What can I do? Well, you should note the quiet and you should note the calm. There's no... I mean, that, that's a good sign in a sense, that it's a sign that you've developed a concentration, but... It's just a byproduct of good practice. The calm and the quiet is not really the goal. So just say to yourself, calm, calm or quiet or joy. If you like it, say liking. Someone in my life is very ill, yet refuses to see reality. They won't go to a doctor, and it's harming all of their relationships. It's as if they've chosen to suffer. Is it wrong of me to interfere? Well, it depends what your relationship with them is. Usually I would say the only reason you should interfere is if you're their parent, or perhaps their spouse. Even then I'm not so sure. Really the only way you can say absolutely yes is if you're the parent, because a parent has a duty and an obligation responsibility towards their children in that way to to advise them but quite likely you're not that per, you're not a parent i assume um and so it's completely up to them what they choose to do really your only role is to be a support 
if you're a friend, you're a, you're a friend who is to be there in thick, through thick and thin. You should be a friend who is supportive and speaks well of them. Careful what you come come to internet groups and tell, talk about them behind their back. I'm not. I know. I I don't think you're you're speaking badly about them, but just um, your role is to be supportive of them, and to support them in the cultivation of good things. Them not going to see a doctor is not harming their relationships. It's harming the relationships that people get upset about that. If they are not upset. And maybe they're maybe they're they're on the right path. A person doesn't need to go see a doctor to be on the right path. If they're ill mentally and they refuse to go see a, a, a doctor, like a, a meditation teacher, then that's a problem. But if someone is ill physically, it's it's up to them what they decide to do. I'm not saying that they're doing the right thing by not going to see a doctor, but it's certainly not necessarily the wrong thing. It's not always right to go see a doctor. I mean, there are some some ways that going to see a doctor is not the right thing. You know, I think in some situations, doctors don't give you the right because doctors are fixed on focused on physical health and so on. I, I think mostly you should go to see a doctor, so don't misunderstand me. But there's certainly a case to be made for the fact that doctors don't know, don't know everything and don't always give you the right, from a Buddhist perspective, give you the right thing. So don't be so quick to judge physical health is not the same as mental health. Now, one thing I would say, just in general on this topic, is that trying to stay alive is important. Trying to how, Supporting people to stay alive is important. We should never give over to the view that it's okay to let someone die, or it's okay for me to, it's better for me to die, or that sort of thing. It's usually not better for a person to die, because you don't know where they're going to go in their next life. So it is concern that if a person dies, if a person is dying, it is, it is of a concern to, to, to help them stay alive. But that doesn't mean you push them to stay alive. You can't do that. It doesn't, I mean, it's not really helpful or supportive. It doesn't have positive results. It just means that that should be your outlook, that in your mind, the best thing for them would be to stay alive because being a human is a very powerful and, and beneficial thing. You don't know... They might be born as an animal in their next life, and then it would be very difficult for them to be just to develop spiritually. In sitting meditation, I became sleepy. I noted sleepy, but I started dreaming. Then opposite impulses of let's get back to work, to the practice, and no, let's stay in the dream. How should I note this? Well, note whatever's clearest. If you, I mean, they, they don't happen at the same time. So if you want to go back to work, the practice, you can note that. If you want to stay in the dreams, you can note that. If you're dreaming, you can note seeing or so on. It's not just those. There's much more going on. There's probably feelings of pleasure or calm or something like that. Maybe worry or guilt or so on. And there's nothing special about that. Just try and note whatever's there. Is it okay to note feeling instead of thinking? For example, feeling like I have been happier, sadder, less energetic, or more relaxed lately. 
It's broader than thinking, which I note more so when I notice a thought or stream of thoughts. Well, that's more like knowing. We use uh, usually the word knowing when you're aware of something. When you become aware of something like, oh, I've been more happier, that's a knowledge, that's an awareness. So we say knowing. It's just a word. We don't have a great word for it in English, but it's kind of like being aware of something. We use the word knowing when you know something that happened. You're just trying to not make more of that knowledge. So you're noting the knowledge. Oh, yes. Now I'm knowing this. I'm aware of this. Is it a problem to note confused and doubting? Sometimes for no reasons I feel I am not noting correctly, and I end up thinking, I am not able, I should give up. I'm not quite sure how it relates to confused or doubting, but when, when you feel like I'm not able, I should give up, that's discouraged, I guess. If you're feeling discouraged, you should note that sad or upset or so on, unhappy, disliking, when you dislike that you're not noting correctly. Thinking that you're not loading correctly would just be thinking, so note that. I've been feeling helpless and weak lately, constantly worrying about things that may happen to me and giving in to binge eating, then judging myself, or judging how I look, too, I feel trapped. How do I start to make a change against this negative momentum when feeling trapped, helpless? Well, if you've read our booklet on how to meditate, if you haven't read our booklet on how to meditate, maybe start read the booklet. And if you have, then maybe consider to take a meditation course. We have courses that you can do at home. Don't be too hard on yourself, just take the steps. You know, there are steps. We have concrete steps that can help you, so just take those steps. Signing up for a course is great because you put yourself under the, under the, you become my responsibility, you see. So, so psychologically, I don't do much. We just meet once a week and you do all the work, but because you're putting yourself, you don't have to think anymore about what should you do. I'll tell you what to do. That's what having a trainer, having a teacher is so important. That's why going to school, that's why we have schools, because the teacher, you put yourself in the teacher's hands, and they tell you what to do. You've got homework, you've got essays and exams and so on. All of that that's given to you, it's like spoon-fed to you, so you don't have to think anymore. You just have to do the work. It's much easier. It's a great way to start. So consider that if you're interested. Meditation has given much calm in just simply experiencing instead of fixing and reacting. One thing I cannot comprehend is loss of control. Does it mean there is nothing we can really do about anything? No. It means that things aren't yours or belong to you. It means that you are not. It means that things don't have a, a self or an entity, and you don't have a self or an entity. It means that there's only experience. So the way the world works is through one experience comes another experience and another experience, and experiences influence future experiences. I mean, it's, it's really how we already understand things. It's just we remove a lot of the baggage. 
So for example, you might be experiencing certain things, seeing certain things, hearing certain things, means meeting with certain people, for example, and you just want to fix that. You want to not meet with certain people or certain experiences. Or maybe you want to. Maybe someone dies and then you wish you could see them. And because you identify, because of the many kinds of identification where you want to make something happen, you wish you could make something happen, you want to get rid of something, you wish you could get rid of something, we struggle to, to, to obtain and to, to create those situations and those experiences. We, we work and we try to force things without, without having a clear understanding of how dissociated that is from reality, how reality works on a much simpler level. It works experiences creating other experiences. You can't uh, force things to be the way you want just because you want them. So there, there is no self involved. The, 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 the idea of lack of control is in trying to force things to be the way you want, in, in trying to, or in, in the trying. It's just in the way you approach things. But it basically is, it's a delusion about reality. You get frustrated and upset when things don't go your way. But the only way you get frustrated and upset is if you don't understand how, the, how things are. Because if you understood the way things work, then of course you wouldn't get frustrated. You'd be like, oh yeah, of course that's not going to happen. If you don't understand it, you'll get frustrated. You'll think, oh, why didn't this work? Because you just don't understand. You, you, we live in this world of concepts that is so dissociated from what's actually happening behind the scenes that we always constantly are in a state of frustration and disappointment and yearning and wanting and and. and ambition and trying to force things when it's, it's dissociated from what's actually happening and it creates great problems for us when we strive for things to be me and mine to get things to become things because behind the scenes there's a much different story going on all that's happening is um, experiences are creating other experiences so when you have ambition to create a certain experience like i want to become a doctor or I want to become rich or famous or something like that. I want to um, get married to this person or something like that. Behind the scenes, there's all this craving and desire and, and, and stepping on other people's toes to get what you want and ignoring people, other uh, help that other people need and that sort of thing. I mean, we ruin our relationships to get what we want. So behind the scenes, there's all these results that are what's really going on. And then we get what we want and we wonder, why didn't it make me happy? Why is my life so crappy now that I got what I want? Or got rid of what I want, what I didn't want. That's the, the, the non-self means it's not about entities, like I get this. It's about experiences behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, there's no, it's not working like that, like self and me and mine and so on. I just started practicing. I find it difficult to determine labels when noting. For instance, when there is an itch, how should I note that? Or irritation, should it be noted as irritated or thinking? Well, itch, you would note itching, itching. If you're irritated, you could just note irritated, yeah. Irritation is not just a thought. 
a thought is it has content of thinking this or thinking that. Irritation is a state of mind. It's a judgment, a reaction. It's based on disliking. So you can say disliking or irritated. It's also fine. Is it correct to notice and note standing with your eyes? understand. No, you don't notice with your eyes. You, st standing is with the physical sensation. You don't look and see that you're standing. I mean, that sort of might work, but it's not the best way to do it. Much better is to be aware of physically the sensation of standing. Isn't omitting things dishonest and potentially bad? Should it be avoided unless it's somehow beneficial? I've done pretty well with not lying, but I notice myself developing my ability to omit things. Well, not always. No, it, it, that comes down to your intentions. Quite often you should omit things. You shouldn't tell people things that are going to cause problems. But if you omit things for your own benefit and for the detriment of others, well, that's problematic. So it's not, no, it's not necessarily a bad thing to omit things. It's not dishonest. You don't have an obligation to tell everyone everything, but your your best practice is to do things that are going to be to the best benefit of all. Help yourself, help others, help help people to become better people. I have an ambition to be financially independent one day, and in order to achieve this goal, I have to compete with other people. Can this ambition and competition interfere with deepening my practice? It's absolutely against the practice. It goes in the opposite direction. Ambition in the world is just digging yourself deeper. Digging yourself deeper into samsara. Meditation is about giving up our ambitions. Now, desire to be financially independent. Being financially independent is a good thing. But not the ambition involved. So what I mean by that is, if you see that as a goal, that can be good to work towards. That's realistic and reasonable, but you should never have a drive or ambition towards it. And so it's most likely that you're never going to, to well, you may never achieve it. And it, achieving it will be very much more out of your hands. And some people just fall into being independently, financially independent. But if it means that you have to have ambition and drive, if that's what it takes, then it's certainly not worth it. So you can think of working and doing your best and thinking that the goal should be that you are not dependent on others or that that, that should be the, the direction you're headed, but you should never have ambition or drive for it. And so you should never compete with others. Now, you can compete passively in the sense that you do your work, and that's a competition of sorts because everyone will be judged by how well they do their work, but you should never try to um, harm others or, or work against others. So really, it's not about competition. It's about doing the, the best work that you can do, and that's, I think, reasonable. Certainly, everyone should do the best work that they can do. I think a meditator benefits from that.
You should never be thinking in terms of competing with others. You should wish them well as well. It doesn't mean that you have to put aside your benefit for theirs, not necessarily, and certainly not in the in the world. I don't think there's a need to not do your best in, in order that others might get the things that you might get. You do your best and may the best person win. So it's not really about winning, I suppose. It's about um, doing your best and being judged by it. Bhante, we've crossed the hour. Do you have time for one more question? Of course. When I meditate, I have suicidal thoughts. Should I act on them? You should act mindfully on them. Now, I'm not qualified. I'm not a professional to give you advice on suicide. Um, my job is to tell you that you have to find a suicide help hotline. There are people who can help you. There are professionals. Most likely, wherever you are, there are, there are organizations in place that can help you with your suicidal thoughts. Killing yourself is never a good thing. Killing yourself from a Buddhist perspective is is almost always a way to be born in a bad state because it's based on aversion and, and anger. Because of the angry mind states, it leads to an angry rebirth, which is hell or, or the animal realms or the lower realms. So almost always it's going to cause, I mean, pretty much always it's going to cause you only more suffering in the future. So certainly you should act, but you should act through mindfulness, meaning you should, as a result of having those thoughts, you should be mindful. You should be mindful of the thoughts, mindful of the emotions, and you should be able to separate the thoughts and the emotions because thoughts are, thoughts are deceptive. We have thoughts and we think it means something. We think it means we agree with that thought, but our brains are very tricky. Our brains give rise to thoughts that we don't even need, thoughts that we have no interest in in entertaining and that's fine because the thoughts are not powerful what is powerful is our reactions to our thoughts so when you have a thought try and just see it as thinking it really has no power over you you can have a thought that you should go out and kill people it doesn't mean you actually want to go kill people but it's, it's just the mind can be crazy sometimes it just means that thought has arisen so you note the thought and let it go say thinking, thinking. If you haven't read our booklet, I recommend reading the booklet, absolutely. If you read the booklet and practice, based on that booklet, you're sure to become free from these thoughts of suicide. You won't have any interest or need for them. And if they do arise, you'll be able to see them just as thoughts and let them go. You'll be able, be able to deal with your emotions, your depression or anxiety or fear or sadness or whatever. and you'll be able to let them go. I wish you all the best. Thank you for taking the extra time to answer that, Bhante. I think we can close up. Thank you, Chris, and thank you, Ulu and Jim. We have, oh, I see Ulu is very active in chat, good. And Jim is our organizer, organizing all the questions, I think. Thank you all. And thank you all for your questions and for your participation. I wish you all peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Have a good day. Sad. Sad.